So go ahead and make your way to the book of 1 Timothy chapter 4. After taking a break in our study of 1 and 2 Timothy, last week we had kind of a fun family evening in here. We now kind of get back into the, uh, the study, the series that we are in. And the title in tonight's message is A Fight Worth Fighting. A fight worth fighting. You know, years ago when my, my oldest son, Wes, was around 10, 11 years old, he, he started kind of, you know, kind of coming to me uh, in the mornings. I would attend a local class at a boxing gym in our, in our area. And he got caught up with this idea of like getting hit in the face. Like, what would it, what would it be like? What would, what would it feel like if it, if it happened to me? You know, kind of just random kids' curiosity kind of things. And, and so, you know, at the, the class, he was kind of getting into the coach there, asking him the same question. So the, the coach kind of put us in the ring together and he said, okay, here's what I want you to do. Wes, I want you and your dad to like circle around the ring. I want you kind of advancing, you know, and, and trying to, you know, uh, you know, move and learn how to breathe and, and just kind of focus on kind of stepping forward and advancing, you know, no, no hitting. But what I want your dad to do is he's kind of backing up, you know, to throw these soft jabs at you so that, you know, you can kind of, you know, use those to move and, and learn all that stuff with. And, and you know, obviously we're, we're just going like 30%, like light sparring. Wes has got the headgear on and all. And so, so we begin and Wes isn't moving around and, you know, I'll throw out a, a jab and, you know, and, and he'll kind of just moving forward and, and boom, it just, it hits him, you know, and I'm like, oh, okay, Wes, you got to move, you know, and a couple times of just getting hit in the face, even though the, you know, the headgear on, I just see this look come over him. And I've seen that look before. And I'm like, okay, here, here it comes. And so, you know, he's getting like really upset and aggravated getting hit. I'm trying to encourage him to move. And then out of nowhere just comes this, this like crazy haymaker, this like prepubescent haymaker out of nowhere hits me like square in the face and I saw stars. And I was like, whoa, okay. So, you know, I guess that's what happens when you get hit. So at least I know, you know what it's like, but you know, that's what happening happens uh, when, when you're boxing. It kind of comes with the territory. And tonight, as we consider these things that the Apostle Paul lays out for us here in this letter to Timothy, you know, what it means to be called and, and what it's like to step into the, the ministry and, and to serve and be used by God, we see what comes with that territory. And we'll discuss, you know, things like the opposition that's there, the work that's involved, and the great blessing that's also included as God uses us to advance his kingdom on earth. And so Paul, in this letter, he's already discussed some opposition that his friend Timothy is facing there at the church in Ephesus. But, you know, since the beginning of this letter, Paul's you know, probably laid out the most uh, comprehensive and complete instruction for the church's leadership and overall organization. And, and just a, a real quick recap of our outline that we've been using here in First Timothy, we've seen him focus in chapter one, first on the church and her message, and in chapter two, the church and her members, and chapter three, the church and her ministers, and that leads us here tonight, considering chapter four, the church and her ministry. 
the church and her ministry, like looking at the, the minister now seeing kind of here is what it all looks like in action. Here's the result of having a good minister in looking at the ministry. And something to note as, as we kind of see God's design and blueprint for his church and our functions and its leaders, you know, we cannot lose sight of the application that this will have really for all God's people. You know, whether or not your job title is minister or pastor or you are an elder or leader in some, you know, ministry or even church, listen, this is for you. I love reminding people what Peter tells us there in 1 Peter 4.10, reminding us, he says, as each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. And so we read what Peter writes here, and we, we must admit, yeah, we're all recipients of God's many gifts that he's given us, especially our own salvation, and now are called, as Peter puts it, to be good stewards of this multifaceted, diverse, manifold grace of God. So whether we like it or not, we're, we're in the ministry, right? Paul is, is detailing, you know, things like right doctrine and, and one's calling and order and pursuit of godliness. Hey, this is for us as the church, as good stewards of the gifts of God that he has given us to steward his grace. And so I've broken up this chapter tonight, just three parts we're going to look at. First, we're going to focus on God's never-changing goodness, Secondly, we're going to see our pursuit of godliness. And then thirdly, we're going to focus on your present calling. And I almost tonight, uh, entitled tonight's message, Missing the Point, because we began looking at this section where Paul you know, is talking about some who have strayed from the truth and were teaching a false gospel. But in contrast, Paul focuses this first section really on bringing us back to God's never-changing goodness. And so let's get into it as we read the first couple verses here in 1 Timothy. Paul writes, Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry, and commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. So in this first section, we see the Apostle Paul talking about kind of this opposition that's going on. And, and you know, when he wrote his first letter to the church there in Corinth, he wrote about his plans to visit them and how they would be delayed because of this great and affected, effective door that had been opened up for him there in the city of Ephesus, which is the exact city where Timothy now finds himself as their pastor. And Paul not only saw this opposition, but he also saw the opportunity there. Even though he said that there were many adversaries. And you know what? That is really typically the case. Wherever it seems that God moves, wherever it seems that God is working, listen, our adversary, the devil, is always there, showing up in hopes to counter that work and distract God's people. 
And where this might frighten some, or maybe worry some if they're, you know, thinking about stepping into a certain role or serving. Listen, friends, we need to be encouraged. Like right off the bat, if that is you, or even if you're in like a, a personal season of revival, we need to understand that this opposition is not your fault. This opposition doesn't mean that you've done anything wrong, but instead we understand that the opposition that we face, friends, it comes with the territory. This opposition is par for the course. And even sometimes it is the evidence that we are in fact involved in this ever-present battle that is raging all around us. Listen, if you're experiencing opposition This literally means that maybe you've just stepped foot onto the battlefield that has been there since the beginning. This opposition is nothing new. So do not be discouraged. Do not worry. Hey, maybe that's why Paul is bringing it up here to Timothy. Paul here begins by stating the spirit expressly says, which most believe is referring to Jesus and his teachings throughout his ministry, addressing the topic of false teachers, blasphemers, and hypocrites. Jesus there in Matthew 23 alone calls the scribes and Pharisees hypocrites over six times. He calls them blind guides, fools, whitewashed tombs, sons of those who murdered the prophets, serpents, vipers, a brood of vipers. And I think we get the point. Jesus doesn't shy away from calling out these false teachers exactly what and who they are. And even in his encouragement to his disciples there in the upper room, the night that he was arrested, Jesus there in John 16 says, when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak what is on his own initiative or on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will disclose to you the things which are to come. And so the spirit is expressly told Paul. Now Paul tells Timothy, hey, there's going to be those who depart from the faith or in other translations, abandon their faith and follow after these deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. But now the question arises, like, who are these deceiving spirits? What is this doctrine of demons that Paul writes about? Well, it's interesting that in the last chapter, Paul made reference there to the creation story in the book of Genesis. Because in the book of Genesis, in chapter 3, that's where we find the very first deceiving spirit, right? The OG demon, the devil himself, coming and preaching his demonic doctrine to the woman Eve. And we all remember his method, right? When he slithered up and asked her, hey, did God really say that? A subtle question was his lure. He was trying to lure her in to some sort of false godliness or godlikeness when he added, hey, you can actually be like God, if you remember And since that moment in the garden, these demonic doctrines and deceiving spirits have been at work to undermine God's truth and message to his people. And Paul goes into some detail now into what these false teachers were teaching there in verse 3. He said they were forbidden, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. 
So Paul points out these two external practices, these, these two behaviors that these false teachers were commanding in order to promote their, their brand of godliness, right? And although these two subjects in marriage and diet, you know, seem oddly dissimilar, well, some suggest once again, it has something to do with the creation story, which seems to be kind of the theme of these false teachers and their false message. We see Paul warn Timothy at the beginning of his letter here in chapter one, from the distractions that there are in those endless genealogies that these false teachers were peddling, which pointed back to Genesis where it all began. And in that, that outward meaningless information, again, they were trying to claim pointed to some special privilege or godliness. And the garden may have been the skewed template that these false teachers were peddling, which might be why Paul continues to reference the creation story. And so this demonic doctrine, these deceiving spirits were spreading. Well, maybe if that is the case, if the creation story was their template, well, maybe that was kind of how they maybe you know, preach their message, maybe just like the serpent himself. Maybe it came in the form of these subtle questions. Like, hey, what was the state of humanity back in the garden? I mean, God created everything. He said it was good. So maybe that's how we should try to live our lives, right? And and diet-wise, I mean, weren't they all vegetarians? Maybe we should too. Maybe God never intended, you know, meat to be on the menu, and, and what about Adam and Eve? I mean, technically, were they, they really married? And so, you know, again, these subtle questions trying to divide and distract from the true message, which was really that God had created everything and it was good. And that he created it for us to enjoy. And so for these false teachers, their truest form of godliness, promoting this behavior-based godliness that was forbidding to merit, to, to, for, Forbidding to marry, abstaining from certain foods, and you really have to go back to garden living in order to live a godly life. But listen, regardless of those false messages and, and this false teaching, we see it focus on an abstinence from things that Paul says, hey, no, God created those things for us to enjoy. God created these things to be received in thanksgiving. Verse 4 Read with me. Paul goes on, for every creature or created thing, every created thing of God is good and nothing is to be refused if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. If you instruct the brethren in these things, you will be a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourished in the words of faith and of the good doctrine which you have carefully followed. So, Paul's continued accusation of these false teachers, again, is that they were missing the point. In chapter 1, Paul calling out these false teachers, again, he says, you guys wish to be teachers of the law, but you guys, you don't even know the law. You're missing the point completely. And it's the same with the creation story. Paul writes there in chapter 5, these things, I'm sorry, verse 5, these things have been sanctified by the word of God and prayer. And this is reference to God's direction there in the garden to man, to, to partake in all of these good things that he had created. 
But listen, when we read about the Genesis account, it was never meant to be a template on how to live or what to eat. But instead, the creation story, much like the law, it was given to us to teach us that we cannot do enough to save ourselves, but instead only trust in Christ alone to save us. And for us, not only on this side of creation, but better yet, on this side of the cross, we find that there is no behavior or ritual or anything that we can abstain from that will enhance our standing with our Father in heaven. Nothing. And it's true that, that what many of, of, you know, even in our day, these false teachers are teaching the false message that is very similar based on a behavior-based salvation, focusing on ritual or some rite of passage. Listen, for us as children of God, we understand that we stand firmly on God's promise and his power seen in the cross of Calvary, that it's Jesus plus nothing equals everything. That, my friends, is the gospel message, simple and clear. It's the good news, the goodness of God on display. He is a good God, and he gives good gifts to his children to enjoy and receive. And so who would step in to that and say, no, not so, Lord, not so. It's what Peter said to Jesus or to God when when God in that trance, he showed him, you know, that sheet that came down and all those unkosher and and, uh, uncommon, uh, you know, unclean animals that the Jewish community Uh, had been forbidden to eat. And he said, hey, God said to him, rise, kill, and eat. And Peter said, not so, Lord. But God said, hey, corrects him. Do not call something unclean what I have made clean. And this doctrine of demons still exists and is in circulation today. Not so, Lord. Which is translated, uh, actually, of somebody saying, hey, no thanks. I have a better way. Like in some effort of self-sacrifice, we can add to what Christ has already accomplished through his precious blood. You know, through some cultic practices, or I've heard stories of ancient monks, or even our church fathers who abstain from certain things and comforts, or even inducing some painful ritual in order to obtain some sort of godliness. We even see maybe that exists in some forms of legalism within the church. People calling something that God has given us unclean or labeling something forbidden for the sake of a greater state of godliness. Or maybe even more commonly, maybe when it's, man, in a moment where we're weak, We give our enemy a foothold when we've stumbled or we wander. We start to think like, man, I've blown it. I can never do enough. I can never do what's right. I'll never be able to be a good Christian. Listen, we give credence to that same behavior and we're missing the point that there is nothing that we can do as a child of God to enhance our own righteousness than what he's already done on the cross of Calvary. Friends, the enemy is constantly trying to move us away from that message. He's constantly trying to have us focus on behaviors, ritual, and religion because he knows then, 
and it's a lost cause. It'll left us, leave us feeling hopeless. And the more that he can accomplish this, listen, the less we see Jesus, right? The more that he can accomplish this, the less we see God and his work on through Jesus that is enough. The less we see him worthy to be thanked and praised for all that he has provided and the less dependent that we are on his precious blood to cleanse us no matter how far we've wandered. But any attempt to work out our own salvation is an attempt to make God a debtor to a set of rituals and behavior apart from a pure heart, reliant on his blood alone that makes us righteous. Listen, the Bible teaches that God is a debtor, a debtor to no man. But Paul says to Timothy, look at this in verse 6, if you instruct the brethren in these things, Timothy, you will be a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourished in the words of faith and of the good doctrine with you, which you carefully followed. So instruct the brethren and sistren, I'll add there, instruct the church in these things. What things? Well, that God is good. Again, he gives good gifts to his children to receive and enjoy. And nothing could be added to the complete work of Christ that saves us. All right. Paul continues there in verse 7. He says, Reject profane and old wives' fables and exercise yourself towards godliness. For bodily exercise profits little, but godliness profits for all things, having promise of the life that, it, that now is and of that which is to come. This, verse 9, is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance. For to this end, we both labor and suffer reproach because we trust in the living God who is the savior of all men, especially those who believe these things command and teach. Again, Paul letting Timothy know, hey, these things command and teach. After exposing this false doctrine from these false teachers, what does Paul exhort Timothy to do? He says, exercise yourself towards godliness. After bringing the focus away from these demonic doctrines, back towards the goodness of God, Paul puts Timothy's attention on pursuing godliness. And here's what we need to understand, is that this distinction that Paul is making on the subject of godliness. Listen, Paul's not condemning behavior or action in and of themselves, but instead he's pointing to the error, the self-driven motives that people think achieve a certain amount of godliness. And to, to that, Paul would say, hey, don't waste your time with it. It's fruitless. It's worthless, foolish. But instead he commands Timothy to rightly pursue godliness by way of exercise, training, and discipline. And what do we see in those things? Well, yeah, in exercise, we see it involves some behavior, right? Some form of exercise. Training, well, it's going to include an action. And also in discipline, we see it takes a certain amount of sacrifice. So what's the difference? Well, friends, the difference is motivation. You see, at the heart of any demonic doctrine is self. That's the motivation, my will be done instead of thy will be done. And this false teaching that Timothy finds the church up against, again, at the heart of it, its motivation is self. 
What can I do to make myself more godly? What can I do to make myself more righteous and holy? And at the heart of Paul's message, which is the gospel message, we can't do anything else to make ourselves more holy and righteous before God. But instead, our motive stems from, in this exercise, in these actions, in these behavior, listen, our motive stems from the cross of Calvary alone because of what Christ has done. This is what compels me towards living a godly lifestyle. It's the love of Christ that compels me, Paul would write. Now, when we think of the word exercise, whether... Hey, it makes some of us shudder or not. Listen, we can all understand Paul's illustration that he's pulling from. The Greek word exercise that Paul uses here is where we get our English word gymnasium. He's talking about the gym, right? We all know what the gym is. And the gym was a huge part of the Greek culture there in Ephesus where Timothy pastored. There was typically one in every city. And it wasn't that Everybody just kind of was really into and loved sports and fitness. But, but listen, it was more than that. Much like the Mecca is to the Muslim pilgrim, the original Olympic Games were for those who worshipped Zeus and those other gods in Greek mythology. There was a huge overlap in sports and religion in this culture. And it was more than just a physical competition. Those Olympic Games were, were like a religious pursuit to these athletes. Those games were held in Olympia, hence the name Olympics. And Greeks would exercise and train themselves for years leading up to those games before the pilgrimage to that huge type of event and festival Held there in the temple of Zeus, these games featured sporting events alongside ritualistic sacrifices, again, towards Zeus and those other gods and mythology. But Paul makes this reference towards exercise so that he could really highlight the devotion and dedication towards godliness, that there is towards godliness. Like a devotion and dedication towards something that you believe in and you sacrifice yourself and discipline yourself for some purpose. For the Olympic Games, they competed and they ran for a prize. A medal or a crown or some temporal glory that would only exist until the next race. But here, Paul, again, by no means is condemning physical exercise or fitness. But again, he's placing physical exercise alongside godliness, what it is to exercise godliness to compare the rewards. Paul's saying, hey, there's a difference in the rewards. Physical training profits little. Its benefits are limited. It's temporal as those benefits only last for a moment. But the pursuit of godliness, to exercise godliness in spiritual training and conditioning and discipline has far greater benefits. He says it's profitable for all things, having the promise of the life that now is and that is which to come. So Paul's laying out this comparison and saying, hey, physical exercise, it's limited in its benefits, but man, eternal, I'm sorry, 
exercising yourself for godliness has eternal benefits, both for today and for tomorrow. There's no comparison. Writing about this same principle and, and contrast to the believers there in Corinth, Paul would, would tell them, he would write to them, all athletes are disciplined in their training. They do it to win a prize that will fade away, but we do it for an eternal prize. There is no comparison. Friends, this is the best investment that we can make. Not only would it benefit us today, but for eternity, forever. So does that mean that we shouldn't exercise for our physical sake? No, I mean, of course not. There's tremendous benefits to physical exercise and a healthy diet. Maybe one day I'll figure those things out. But, but really, we should be good stewards of this body that God has given us. And to, to Paul's point, to those in that culture, he was saying, don't allow the temporal and physical things of this world to have your hearts where we can lose sight of the value that there is in the eternal. Far greater gain in that. Paul is taking his cue from Jesus himself, who said it first there in Matthew chapter 6. Jesus said, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And church, may we take stock of our pursuits and investments from time to time and allow this principle of investments in light of eternity to help us make the decisions where we invest our time. May we ask God's Spirit to, to give us wisdom, and, and, and through that lens of eternity, may we make those proper decisions and proper investments, knowing those benefits, the comparison in benefits. Of course, we should always be good stewards of this body, that, this temple that God has given us to steward, but may we not lose sight of those eternal benefits and make those investments based on that. So quickly, I want to talk about what this discipline and what this training that Paul is referring to looks like. So, you know, I have a lot of, of skinny friends. Actually, everybody I know is more skinnier than I am. So everybody to me is skinny, but, and I'm sure you, you might have these friends, you know, that exercise regularly. They, they eat healthy. You know, you go out to like meet them for lunch and you walk up and you order, you know, the combo plate with an extra side. And then right behind you, they're like, I'll take the salad. And you're like, what? We all have those friends. And you're like, why don't you tell me? I would have, I would have gone salad too. And then just gone somewhere else to get a real lunch afterwards. But, but generally speaking, right, for the most part, the choices that we make have a lot to do with our health and our physical state. The choices we make. And it's the same with our spiritual health, where the decisions and choices that we make on a daily basis have a lot to do with our spiritual health. I can break this down with some questions that I even ask myself. Like, will I choose to devote myself to being a student of God's word? Will I look to be receiving that daily nourishment 
as Paul puts it, to be nourished by his word in faith and receive that encouragement, receive that direction and that wisdom that God has to offer me? Or will I neglect it? Will I choose to do other things instead and rely really on that reprocessed bits that I can get from other people and Bible studies or even rely on the scraps that I can get along the way? Will I be a student of God's word? Will I choose to be a part of a church, an authentic member of a family, this family of God, and come to worship, receive, and serve together? To be discipled and to make disciples as we gather together and make up this beautiful monument of God's mercy and grace? Or will I avoid putting myself in this vulnerable environment for the sake of protecting my my own comforts, avoiding accountability to anyone or anything? Will I choose to commit myself to a lifestyle of prayer? taking moments, you know, really being intentional with the moments that I have to commune with God, with the desire to align my heart with his will, not the other way around as we seek direction for our lives, or will we just go out alone? Will I, will I do this by myself in a a default mode of operation in the default world influence compass of my heart and allow that to make the decisions that I do on a daily basis. Now, friends, this is not legalism or any attempt to gain righteousness from a litany of works, but instead, this, like Paul says, is exercising ourselves towards godliness, to allow righteousness to work in and through us as God's people. Now, will we be perfect? Man, of course not. We won't be perfect. Any training, physical, mental, or spiritual, listen, is characterized first by failure. I mean, let's be honest. We're going to fail more than we succeed in our spiritual journey. But listen, if we persevere, man, we will gradually see progress. If we persevere, we're going to see that progress until succeeding happens more often than failing. That's how exercise works. This is, we see this many times in reality when we seek to make those important changes in our life or put to death a particular sin, replace them with better behaviors. Man, at first it can seem impossible. We see little to no progress at all. Feeling like we take one step forward and two steps back thinking, man, what's the use of it all? But friends, this is exactly what Satan wants us to think. And it's at this point we exercise perseverance. Take Wes and his new love of boxing, right? If he keeps at it, trains more, man, he can learn. He can grow stronger, which means he can grow in knowledge of tactics and strategies and and, and knowing himself better, his strengths and weaknesses, grows in his ability not only to withstand the punches, but to be a better fighter himself, more effective boxer, and cause some damage to his opponent. Listen, we can see those parallels in our own spiritual health as well. What it can accomplish when we persevere and exercise, pushing through even the failures 
Because I trust me, I know we want to see instant success, but holiness doesn't come that way. Especially those sinful habits are typically not broken overnight. But by patient perseverance, by discipline, hey, follow through is required. We can see some lasting change. And Paul references this there in verse 10 where he says, For to this end we both labor and suffer reproach because we trust in the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially those who believe. Paul's like, hey, hey, to make this happen, yeah, it takes work. It's not going to happen overnight. It's not something that we just simply say or, or we can teach. But listen, we have to do, we have to put in the work, the labor, even suffer reproach. Listen, if anybody tells you that walking with Jesus is easy, of course, we know that's not true. They're lying. But we trust in a living God, the risen Christ, who by the same power that raised him from the grave, it saves us, helps us, empowers us. Do you believe that tonight, church? Amen. Again, Paul's encouragement to Timothy there in verse 11, teach these things, command them. I'm sorry, these things command and teach. And Timothy was called to be their teacher and pastor. This was his responsibility. Verse 12, Paul continues. He says, let no one despise your youth, but be an example to the believers in word, in conduct, in love, in spirit, and in purity. Now, Timothy, many believe, at the writing of this letter, was kind of in his, you know, 30s, maybe 40s, and not what we think when we hear this verse, right? You know, don't let anybody despise your youth. But in the minds of many in his fellowships, in his fellowship, I'm sorry, maybe even his elders were typically weren't uh, um, considered elders until they were about the age of 50. Yeah, Timothy was young in comparison. And Paul says, hey, don't let them look down on you because of your age. Don't let them, you know, treat you like you're unable or ill-equipped. But instead, and be an example to the believers in word, in deed, in conduct, in love, in spirit, faith, and purity. You're called to command these things and, and teach them. But you must set the example Paul's telling Timothy to practice what he preaches. And listen, this is good for us all. We should all be examples of what it looks like to be a Jesus follower. Indeed, not just in word. Especially if God has given us an opportunity like Timothy, maybe to disciple or verbally encourage or share about our faith or teach from a pulpit. Listen, Paul says here, be an example, Timothy, in word and deed. It's interesting here, Paul says, be an example. And that, that word, what he's alluding to there, that term in the Greek is a term which we get our English word type, which speaks of a mark that's made by striking something. So it's kind of like a typewriter, right? When we press that letter, or we press that symbol, that typeface would hammer down on the paper and it would leave its mark. And for those of you that are like, what's a typewriter? Well, it's like a laptop 
But all you can do on it is, is Word, like Google Docs. That's it. And it's the size of a suitcase. But this idea of being an example is more of an idea of, of pressing into something, making an impression into a thing. And so in Paul's mind, this wouldn't be accomplished by, you know, showcasing ourselves, you know, advertising our example, right? Like, you know, setting it up and like, hey, you know, don't want to ruffle feathers. But anyways, you know, he's saying, hey, it's instead this effect that you can have on somebody in a relational sense to live in a way that your life leaves an imprint and has its effect on the people that God has placed around you. It's the same term that Thomas used when he said, hey, unless I see his hands, speaking of Jesus, unless I see those nail marks, or even better, put my finger into those nail prints, then I will believe. And it's not so much that Timothy was to set an example in a way for people to emulate, like he's supposed to be some cheerleader or, or jazzercise instructor for people to watch and mimic. No, but it's more intimate than that. His life was a mold that would be pressed into the lives of others so that they would take on the same shape. And how is this done? Well, Paul lays this out for Timothy there in those four characteristics displayed through two methods. The two methods were seen in both word and conduct. Again, word and deed. Or simply put, the things that we speak, how we speak, and the way that we live. And in our last kind of couple moments here, I want to take some time to kind of look at, at those things. Like, really examine like the things that we speak, how we can set that example in, the, in our speech and also in the way that we live. So first, the way that we speak. In Proverbs 18.21, says, Death and life are in the power of the tongue, which is probably why James tells us to be quick to listen and slow to speak. There is great power in our speech and in the things that we say. Of course, for Timothy, well, this definitely covers that which would be said from his pulpit, his teaching ministry. And the strict warning there is, and rightly to divide the word and not to add or subtract anything from it. But listen, more commonly, just in everyday speech, in conversation, that the things that we say are not necessarily corrupt or coarse. Of course, that we wouldn't be deceitful in our speech, leading people astray. But instead, that we would speak words that would be words of encouragement. That we would be seeking to edify the body with our words. We would speak words that are loving and kind and not cutting people down. We would encourage people instead of gossip around their back about them. And listen, these are so easy to kind of, our words are so easy to let fly often, which means that we need to be disciplined. This is part of that exercise. Discipline in the way that we speak. Careful. Maybe thinking about those things way more than we do just let them come out of our mouth. 
also in spirit, that we would just maintain a great attitude. You know, it seems like everybody knows what the church is against instead of what, man, the things that we love, the things that we're passionate about, that we would have a spirit or an attitude that's positive, not always looking at people or things and picking out what's bad or negative or wrong. Man, instead, we would be constructive with our speech, wanting to encourage and lift up and point out those good things. Again, words of faith that we would be edifying and, and saying things that, that are pure. So we need to be disciplined in our speech, set an example in what we say. Next, the way that we act or our conduct, how we live our lives. Obviously, if our actions don't match our words, well, then there's something wrong with that. It's not do as I say, not as I do type of an example, but, but in conduct to live in a way that doesn't love conditionally like the world does, but instead to love one another because of Christ's love for us. Again, that love that would compel us to love regardless That's what the church should be. That's what the world should know the church for, right? We should be known, again, just like the Bible teaches of how we love each other, but even our love for those people that oppose us. We would have a forgiving heart that puts others above ourselves. And as we ourselves encourage each other in faith, our lives should display the same faith that we share. You know, so often I find myself experiencing a challenge and trial and a message is brought to mind. A worship song is brought to mind. Man, I just was singing it this weekend to trust God and here I am failing at that. Lord, help me to have faith and trust you. Help me in this moment of doubt to believe, to persevere, that we would live lives that exemplify our faith in Christ. And listen, how we serve, and this is a huge one, how we serve the body of Christ can set a great example for those around us coming with a heart that's ready to, to meet the need, right? Not coming with any expect, expectations. And this leads to the last point there in verse 13. Paul writes, Till I come, give attention to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. Do not neglect, neglect the gift that is in you, which was given to you by prophecy, with the laying on of the hands of the eldership. Verse 15, meditate on these things. Give yourself entirely to them that your progress may be evident to all. Take heed to yourself and to the doctrine. Continue in them for in doing this, you will save both yourself and to those who hear you. So here's where Paul makes it clear to Timothy to focus on his present calling. This is where I want to talk about how we need to focus on this calling, this present calling that God has placed right in front of us in this very moment. And now again, for Timothy, 
He is currently pastoring this church there in Ephesus. So not only, and listen to this, not only is Timothy gifted, you know, he may have been a, a gifted teacher or expositor, but listen, his gifting was confirmed, as we just read, by those around him. Okay, those people there in the church and those elders recognized and confirmed not only his gifting, but his heart. This young man had the heart and a vision of, the she- of a shepherd, and this all must have been accompanied by some prophecy there in the church, and the elders confirmed it with their laying on of hands. There was like an ordination that they just prayed over Timothy and made him their pastor. Okay, this is what Paul was saying there in that section that we just read. And I I think we need to understand this because if we don't, we may think like, hey, I feel like I am called to X or Y or Z. And therefore, that's my expectation when I come to serve. Hey, this is my calling. But listen, Timothy's calling, it probably was to be a pastor and a shepherd long before the laying on of hands long before maybe those giftings were recognized. But not until that confirmation took place and that ordination took place was he exercising the gift of a pastor. But what was he doing prior to that? Well, he was probably pursuing that gifting as he was with Paul and and kind of just aiding Paul in whatever Paul needed to be done. He was a servant. Hey, what needs to be done? That's how I'll help. And I think this is key because if we do not know, okay, first of all, if we do not know or haven't realized our own calling or our specific gifting that God has given us, well, listen, here's maybe what we should do. We should ask. We should ask God to stir up the gifts that he has given us. We should ask him to reveal those giftings within us and maybe even ask some trusted people around us some trusted friends. Hey, what do you see in me? What might be some giftings that you see that I'm not seeing? And also, we should ask God for, to reveal them. We should ask friends maybe what they see. We should ask, hey, what can I do to serve? This is the huge one because maybe in serving, God will reveal a certain calling or a gift in whatever the need may be. I remember, you know, you know, hearing a message similar like this, and, and I, I felt the call to, to serve. And I remember uh, asking, like, uh, I think I asked Steve, I was like, hey, how can I serve? He's like, hey, go to children's ministry. So I'm like, okay. So I walk over to children's ministry. How can I serve? And Pastor Tom at the time was overseeing children's ministry and said, hey, we need somebody to teach these kids. Here's, here's the lesson plan. Go teach those kids. And I'm like, oh, it's perfect. Man, I, I want, I, this is exactly what I feel called to do. And I walked into that room and, you know, started trying to teach, trying, being the key word. Tough crowd, man, tough crowd. But you know what? It was amazing. That was the training ground that God had for me. That is where I needed to learn the many things I needed to learn and how to be a teacher and how to shepherd and love on these kids. Maybe it's in serving God will teach us and reveal those 
gifts that he has given us. And secondly, if God has revealed these things to you, these giftings to you, now what should be your aim? Well, we just discussed these things. We are to exercise ourselves towards godliness. Begin that training process. Enact some disciplines in our lives. And here's a big one. Humble ourselves. Because listening and humbling ourselves, God has some lessons and teachers that are unknown to us, that are all around us, both young and old, experienced and inexperienced. It could be another teacher or pastor that we look up to. Hey, it could be a kid in children's ministry that we're hoping to serve and teach. Humble yourself. And just like Timothy was focused, was to focus and meditate on what God put in front of him, hey, do the same. What has God placed in front of you? Who are the people that are surrounding you in the moment that you work with, your friends around you? or people that God has given you influence over, and allow your example, your progress, progress that can be seen, affect those people. May the shape of you kind of make its mold on those people around you. And lastly, Paul's words to Timothy are this, take heed to yourself and the doctrine. And biblically, we see this connection between us and God's word. We, it's taught often from this pulpit here. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, Paul wrote to the church in Philippi. And that will always include this vital relationship that we have with God's word. And in doing so, being students of God's word, the benefits go far beyond us. Far beyond us and to our kids and to our spouses, to our family, to our friends, to our co-worker, to the rest of the people that we call our church family. May we take heed to ourselves and the doctrine. Let's pray. I'll have the worship team come up at this time. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for your word, knowing that it has the power not only to change us, but Lord, even as we seek to be an example of it, Lord, it changes those around us as we seek to exemplify, Lord, the things that, Lord, there are in your word that teach us, Lord, how to speak how to act, how to serve, and be representatives of you here on earth. Lord, we pray that you would pour out your spirit upon us as your church. Lord, that you would stir up the giftings that are here, especially here at Calvary Vista. That, Lord, that there are those that are sitting in these seats right now, Lord, that you have planted a seed of a thought Lord, maybe this might be a calling. You have planted, Lord, a seed of a thought. Lord, maybe this might be my gifting. And I pray, Lord, you would fan those into flame. Lord, you would give us, Lord, Lord, a sense that your spirit has given us the boldness and courage, 
Lord, to step out, Lord, into these areas of service that there are, knowing that it's not about us one bit. But instead, what a beautiful thing that is in faith to watch you move and work. Even in our weakness, Lord, that is when your strength is seen. And so I pray, Lord, you would fan those thoughts and those seeds into flame. That you would continue to use this church to be a bright light and to be used to bring all the more, Lord, those who are lost into the kingdom of God. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. How about you guys stand with us? Hey, if you are here tonight and you are in need of prayer, maybe you just want to share maybe what the Lord spoke to you or has been speaking to you and just maybe even be prayed over that some of those giftings and opportunities would come. Hey, we've got some friends here on the side of the stage. They would love to pray with you about those things. For the rest of us, may you go on this week just kind of chewing on this chapter that we just went over and maybe the things that God has kind of revealed to you or challenged you with. But may you go just with the blessing that the Lord is with you. He's with you in every moment and every step of the way. Don't hesitate to thank him. And if you also just are feeling like, man, you have wandered too far, man, we would love to just encourage you in Christ Jesus that you've never wandered far enough for the grace of God to pull you back in close into the, back into the fold of the family of God. Amen?